Hi everyone, I'm Ashanti Golar, the host of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast. This podcast is all about amplifying the voices of women who are too often forgotten in media coverage. To listen to more episodes of this podcast, search for The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on our website at thebgguide.com. This episode was produced as part of a three-part series in honor of Native American Heritage Month and is featured here by Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. In this episode, we're speaking to the BGG blog contributor and co-founder of Indigenous Women Rising, Rachel Lorenzo. Fans of the BGG blog are familiar with Rachel's posts about her fight to make politics and the reproductive freedom movement more inclusive of women like her, young Indigenous queer mothers. In our interview, we talk about how she got started in politics with the help of women like Congresswoman Deb Holland and the work ahead for her at Indigenous Women Rising. I hope you enjoy. Rachel, it's so great to have you on the podcast. How are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for for including me or for thinking of me. So what I want to start with is when we have guests on, I always look at their bios to see, well, what are they saying about themselves? And in your bio, you state, Rachel was not only raised on traditional values, but also on politics. And I love that. And it really intrigued me because we still hear so many people say that we didn't talk about politics in my house. But for you, you're saying this is something that you were raised on. So tell us more about that. Yeah. So my dad worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is under the Department of Interior, for about 15 years and worked for tribal government before that. My mother um, was a social worker, so very much entrenched in tribal politics. And um, ever since I was a little girl, I can remember being... Uh, six and sitting down with my parents and and watching a presidential debates. So growing up having that variety of of politics in my household, whether it was my parents talking to each other at dinner time, having the news on in the background, watching Meet the Press on Sunday mornings with my parents, or watching presidential debates, it's always been something that's been a part of our family, been part of our household, and. It, I'm so lucky that um, I got a, a different perspective, very unique perspective, where my parents would talk about how national politics impacts our Native communities. And so as I got older, I started seeing that play out when I was in college and then as I got older. So I'm really lucky to have um, to have been brought up in, in that kind of environment. That's great. And you mentioned national politics. And like so many people, you organized for President Barack Obama. So having grown up on politics, you talked about seeing a lot of things for when you were in college what did your time as an Obama fellow teach you about the importance of young people getting involved in political campaigns? Growing up, I, I saw a lot of uh, older white people in politics. And um, in 2008, which is when I turned 18, I saw Barack Obama speak at the University of New Mexico. And it was one of the most inspirational and influential times of in my life. And that's when I decided that politics is my future. If this black man can go to an Ivy League school and be taken seriously as a, 
as someone who could be the president, then I'm sure this queer native person could do something. Four years later, uh, I had my daughter, um, and that was 2012. And that is the year that I got the fellowship with Barack Obama's campaign, um, Obama for America, or OFA. And at that time, uh, Deb Holland, my congresswoman. Uh, yes. So Deb Holland was actually my supervisor during that time. Um, and that was the year that I was finishing up my my bachelor's. And I had just had my daughter during spring break of my last semester as an undergrad. And one of the things that just kept me going that I didn't see in politics at all were young parents and having their their mm. children with them. And Deb inspired me by empowering me to uh, learn how to cut turf and, and do my own lists and always encouraging me to to bring my daughter with me when I was making calls. And she would say, don't worry, just bring the baby, make as many calls as you can. When I would go canvassing, no, it's fine. Take the baby, do what you have to do. And so there was always that support there, even though it was so exciting to have my name out there nationally, like here's this native person in New Mexico um, work, working as a fellow. Um, it it was even more meaningful. Um, and I had I felt like there, I had much more buy-in because I was able to include my, my new little family. Um, and so that's how I started my own tradition of, of um, bringing my children into politics. That is so great. And I'm not surprised to hear that about Deb because she's just one of those women who is all about uplifting other women. And she also knows that we need to normalize bringing the kids to events. All the time, I'll get emails from people saying, is it okay if I bring my daughter? Can I bring my son? And we say yes, because it's so important, not only for them to be in these environments, but it's also very important for them at a young age to see women in leadership. Mm -hmm. If we are running things in our own household, why shouldn't we be running things in the political arena? Amen. This is my this is my view about being a parent that as a society, we don't value children as much as we should. Children are are the ultimate comrades uh, when we instill in them at a very early age that they're valuable, that they're loved, that they're important and that they have something valuable to offer and we're there to nurture it, um, I think in the long run, it's going to make our, our, um, our communities better. I 100% agree. And you have continued your activism work post-college, post-Obama. And when we're recording this interview, we're actually in the midst of the Supreme Court taking up some key issues on their docket, including reproductive freedom and LGBTQ rights. And these are two issues that are very important to you and that you strongly advocate for in your personal life, in your professional life. So first, I want to talk about the advocacy that you do as a queer woman, especially when it comes to ensuring that Native members of the LGBT community are seen and heard, because just even in my space that I operate, I still constantly see people leaving out our Native sisters when it comes to these issues. Whatever happens at the Supreme Court, I can tell you right now that our Native communities are ready to fight for our people. We have been doing it since 
for the last 500 years. And for folks out there who don't know, it was Pueblo people in 1680 that um, led the first successful uh, revolt against a European power, and that was the Spanish. And, you know, we've been doing this for centuries and we will continue to do it um, because we love our people. We love our, our, our land. We love our culture and our tradition and our language. And ultimately that's what's at stake. Um, and in that, um, we have to remember that we need to include our LGBTQ community within our own communities. And these are our people who are in our communities who have um, traditionally been seen as sacred and holding certain kinds of special power. And um, we will continue to honor that. Um, so whatever happens at the Supreme court, we're, we're, we're going to do what we've been doing for the last 500 years. But it is scary to think that that my LGBTQ community members out there are at risk. I remember when gay marriage was uh, or same-sex marriage was was legalized, and I remember thinking, that's not the end of it. Like there will be more that comes up. And here we are. You know, we're we're talking about um, our trans brothers and sisters not being able to potentially not being able to. Um, hold a job or stay in their home or be just being able to raise, raise families if they wanted to and be safe in the place that they call home. Human lives are at stake. And, um, we're, we're in solidarity with, um, with our, our trans community members. And so while I am scared, I'm also really hopeful. I mean, this is a new generation of, of activists, um, across the country and I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, again, whatever comes out of the, the Supreme Court, I know that people who really care and people who are the most impacted are going to come together and, and continue doing what we've been doing. And I love that you said that you're still hopeful because as I was following the conversation the other day, there were people who were saying the exact same thing that regardless of what happens, we will continue to fight and we'll continue to make a way. And even in this political climate, I love what Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says is, we can't let people take our hope and we're still able to find joy and live our lives the best way that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a, as a light skinned indigenous person who is non-binary, but very feminine presenting, like it is, it is my responsibility to make sure, and it is especially white cis women's responsibility to ensure that we are creating safe, we're helping create safe communities um, and that we're not just allowing ourselves to, to find joy, but to make sure that not only are we creating safe spaces, safe communities for our most marginalized community members, but that we are giving them the space, um, that they are taking space to find joy themselves. And I, I want to be very clear that I may not live at, at all of the intersections that Black trans women are at. And that it is incumbent on of the the people who don't live at those intersections um, uh, help create the safe communities that 
that we need. Most definitely. And it's one of the things that I love about you is you always point out the intersectionality piece and the work that you do because I was having a conversation the other day and someone was just asking me about feminism. And I said, when you look at feminism, because we're talking about policy and making it better for women, is you have to look at all the angles. It just can't be oh, this is going to work for women. It has to be, how will this work for LGBTQ women? How will this work for Black women? How will this work for Native women? How will this work for disabled women? How will this work for women in rural communities? Even though we're all women, you still can't put us in this one box when it comes to policy solutions. Exactly. And it goes back to that old political saying, we're not one issue voters. Mm-hmm. We're whole people. I think our our political system and our our society is slowly but surely moving towards a place where we are seeing people holistically and not just as a certain uh, sect of voters or special interest groups. So I have hope. <laughs> this season, as we focus on service and ways to give back, we are partnering with Warby Parker a collaboration between four close friends, Warby Parker was conceived as an alternative to the overpriced and bland eyewear available today. By circumventing traditional channels and engaging with customers directly through their website and retail stores, Warby Parker is able to provide high quality, good looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses with anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. For every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like Vision Spring so that a pair of glasses is distributed to someone in need because they believe that everyone has the right to see. To get started, head on over to warbyparker.com backslash BGG and answer a few quick questions using the quiz and they'll suggest some great looking glasses via their free home try-on program that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. I personally enjoy the variety of colors available in many of the styles and how quickly they ship. Or if you have an iPhone X, you can download the Warby Parker app where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on eyeglasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style just using your phone. Order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy with free shipping and returns. Again, to get started, head on over to warbyparker.com backslash BGG. You are a co-founder of Indigenous Women Rising, and I'm going to read your mission because it's so important. Indigenous Women Rising is committed to honoring Native and Indigenous peoples' inherent right to equitable and culturally safe health options through accessible health education, resources, and advocacy. So tell us more about why you founded this organization, its origins, the work that you're doing, and for me, most importantly, how can our listeners who are interested support the work that you're doing? Yeah, I Indigenous Women Rising is a labor of love. Um, I founded this in 2013 after in Albuquerque, we a coalition of folks defeated a 20-week abortion ban at the Albuquerque at the city level here in Albuquerque, and I didn't really see myself represented. And it's changing. I've seen it change over the last six years. And I, I, 
I'm hopeful about that. But back then, you know, just sometimes it can feel really isolating to be the only Native person in your class, in your work, um, in in a lot of different spaces, even though we're out there, we exist. We, um, even though the history books have made native people out to be this romanticized myth of the past, we are still here. And that, um, that felt and, and not just in that coalition work, but, you know, it just feels isolating to, to be the only native person in a lot of spaces. And so, I actually have a very personal connection to reproductive um, health and justice. Um, at that time, I, I lost a, a very much wanted pregnancy and I needed an abortion myself. And I realized like just how important um, it is for us um, as people who have the ability to become pregnant to be able to have access to abortion care um, and, and not just abortion care, but also prenatal care if we choose to carry our pregnancies to term. We deserve to raise our families in safe communities. We deserve to have um, access to on-demand breastfeeding and chest feeding support um, or formula if we choose. And I can get into the whole thing about why breastfeeding is so political. Um, but you know, I, I didn't see myself reflected in a lot of these spaces. And so I created Indigenous Women Raising to um, figure out a way to include our people. I mean, we are the original inhabitants of this continent and we have this um, ancestral knowledge about fertility and um, controlling our fertility and how we raise our families and sexuality and gender expression. Um, and all of that is included in reproductive health. And so over the years, it was a lot of learning about policy at the federal level and at the state level, learning how to lobby, learning um, how to cultivate my own relationships with elected officials. Um, in 2017, I got a bit of a big break by getting my first ever grant. And I got my sister-in-law, Malia, who is uh, a co-founder. I brought her on this breastfeeding project that I got money for. You know, I, I grew up very traditional. My family is very traditional. And during our sacred ceremonies, it was really hard to breastfeed. So the money that I got was to hire two Pueblo women to alter our traditional dresses to be more breastfeeding friendly. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so um, this was our way of, of honoring the sacrifices that our people have made over the centuries and and creating something new that our people could use. And so we uh, presented that project um, at a hackathon at MIT last year. And we won an award for our, in, for our innovation, and I'm really proud of it. Um, and so there was that breastfeeding aspect, and then the abortion aspect was always in the back of my mind. And I always had people asking, you know, do you do, you do abortions? And you know, no, sorry, I'm not a provider, um, but I can tell you where the clinics are and help you make an appointment. And then some of the folks who had asked me for help, you know, where can I get an abortion? I don't have money to, I don't have gas money to get to my appointment. And then they get to their appointment. They're like, I don't know how to pay for this procedure, but I know I don't want to be pregnant. It's not a good time. I'm in a tough situation, whatever the case may be. And so last year we launched our abortion fund. And so 
um, I, at the launch of the abortion fund, I was looking on social media for volunteers and Nicole Martin, who is now our third co-founder volunteered and helped me sign people in. So that way I could, um, uh, cash people in or like take their donations and get them into our, into our event to, to kick off the abortion fund. And Nicole was just super interested and motivated now as our sex education, sex education curriculum writer. And with the abortion fund, we fund, we help fund, we can't unfortunately pay for someone's entire procedure, but native people who are pregnant, don't want to be pregnant. They call us, we help put money towards their procedure. We also help them with gas and food. We're helping folks all over the country, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, Arizona, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Texas. Um, so those are, are primarily the, the states that we get calls from. We're just really proud of, of how far we've, we've come. I get so emotional thinking about the work that we've done together. And so that's what Indigenous Women Rising is. We have our abortion fund, we have our birth and breastfeeding support, and then we have our sex education. And with our sex education, we are um, at as many events as possible. We have what we affectionately call snag bags. So they're paper bags that have condoms in them with directions on how to use the condom. If people request it, we show people how to turn a condom into a dental dam for oral sex on someone with a vagina. And we talk to young people um, about sexual health, about healthy relationships, about menstruation, any of these questions that they have that they may not feel comfortable going to a family member with, or they don't know who to go to. Um, we do our best to make sure that they have the best, most medically accurate information possible so they can make decisions about their own bodies and their own relationships. Hopefully, we're informing a, a generation of, of young people to, to take pride in, in, um, in their sexuality um, and, and their whatever it is that they're experiencing that they feel empowered to navigate that and not be afraid to ask for help. Um, so that's that's what we do. And your question about how listeners can support our work, go to our website, iwrising.org. Um, we manage the website ourselves. Um, we are on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can give to our PayPal, our Patreon. We have a fiscal sponsor, the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. You can donate to us through there. Um, if you can't donate, that's fine. Share our work. Um, reach out to us. Ask us how we you can let people know that we exist. If you live near Native communities um, or you're in a Native community, you are a Native person, you want to, to figure out how you can help, reach out to us. Send us a message. Um, slide into our DMs on Instagram. <laughs> we check them regularly. So um, folks who are out there, if you want to support monetarily, give to our PayPal, um, paypal.me slash IWRising or through our fiscal sponsor um, or just follow us on social media and let people know that we exist and that we're a resource. I just love everything about Indigenous Women Rising, but it's how you talked about it being led by people in the community, which is so important. But 
with women, we see all the time that they start organizations because it's an issue that's important to them, that they're passionate about, and they really educate themselves on how to get it done. And so many women talk about how they're doing things that they didn't even know that they could do. When you're talking about lobbying and building relationships, so many people are, I didn't even know that this side of me existed until it really becomes time to be the ones to make the change in our community. So kudos on all of that. And for the women who are listening, who where it's in the back of their mind, this issue is important to me. I've been wanting to do something in my community around it. What advice would you give to women who are looking to start doing work in their community around an issue that they care about? What's the biggest piece of advice that you can give out of everything that you've done with getting Indigenous women rising off the ground? I would say that some of the best successes that we've had have been because we've gone to our people and asked them, is this what you need? Is this something you would want? And I think it's it's amazing that folks out there follow their passion and you want to do something that you care about so deeply that you're connected to. But if you want to serve people, you have to ask them what it is they need and as an indigenous person um, and being in politics and, and um, you know, my day job, I work in state government, um, government, federal, federal law or federal politics, state politics, it's pretty paternalistic. I mean, these structures are, are saying this is what you need and this is how we are going to deliver it. This is how we are going to distribute the the money and this is how you're supposed how we're going to we're going to tell you how to spend the money that we give you. As native people, we operate from a much more holistic perspective, I think, and you know, the work that we do, we're we're guided by our traditions and and by our elders and their their knowledge. And so the biggest piece of advice is get it's hard and it's scary. I'm not saying this is easy by any means, but um, ask your community. I have this idea. Is this something that you would want that you would find value in? And that is not only a way to make sure that your idea is successful, but that you're building genuine, long lasting relationships. Um, because if people feel like, yeah, this is something I can buy into and they feel like, like they can get involved somehow. And it's really your own people who are your advocates. They want to be on your side. They, they have something to gain from your amazing idea. Um, but it should be community led. So yeah, that's my long roundabout way of, of saying, you know, that to, for us, that's been our, our, the foundation of our success is asking our people, what is it that you need and how can we help in that way? That is really good advice. And I hope that our listeners who are thinking about getting something off the ground will definitely take it to heart and just go get it done and make a positive impact in their community. So I want to veer back to politics and the election cycle because the 2020 election cycle is underway. Given the work that you did in New Mexico, organizing the indigenous community, 
what advice do you have for the presidential candidates when it comes to better engaging in particular the native LGBTQ community? I would say that even though, you know, we have over 560 federally recognized tribes also understand that we have a lot of native and tribal communities out there who are not recognized by the federal government that still exist. Whatever state you go to, look up number one, whose land are you on? What tribes exist in the state that you're visiting? Invite them to your events or go to them better yet. Have ask for permission to to be to have a presence in a tribal community and Make sure that your whatever you're putting out to the public, whether it's your literature, your social media, make sure that you create space for our LGBTQ community members. Uh, we want to be involved. We're we're not that different um, from cis heteronormative people. Um, just create space for us. Let us know that we're welcome in Indigenous Women Rising's um, community advertisements that we've had over the last couple of years, we always make sure that we say queer families are welcome. You know, taking those steps to educate yourself on whose land are you on, what tribal communities exist in the state that you're visiting, how can you carve out time? Um, and I know time is is so valuable and that everyone has so little of it, or we think that we have so little of it, but we want to be included too. And also understand that not every tribe is the same. Our priorities are going to be different. Our approaches are going to be different. Our tribal government structures are different. Um, some tribes appoint their leaders. Some tribes elect their leaders. Um, I mean, we're all so different, but just taking the time to understand just a little bit about the tribes that exist in, in the states that you're visiting, um, just make sure that that you say explicitly that that we're welcome um i think is is something that i can hopefully hopefully some presidential candidate out there is uh is would listen and and hear that i love it all right moving into our final question what advice do you have for the brown girls listening saying i want to be just like her it's scary and remember that these political structures were not made mm-hmm. for us it's scary. And sometimes I cry about it and it's okay to be emotional. You don't, you don't have to, to make yourself small or create this other persona. Be your, do your best to show up as your most authentic self, take up space. Because even though these structures weren't made for us, when we're in there, our, our existence and our presence just demands that we be in, included, whether people like it or not. And and again, as scary as it is, just take up as much space as possible. And it's taken years for me to, to understand that. And I'm, I, I cannot say enough how scary it is um, because sometimes it, it might put a target on your back. But if more of us take up space, the more that we drown out these, these voices that tell us that we're not good enough, that we're not white enough, that, that you know, we're not smart enough or, or any of these things that just the fact that we exist, that we're deserving of, of dignity and respect. Brown and, and Black women and femmes, we have something valuable to offer, no matter what it is, whether it's art, whether it's uh, policy expertise, whether it's lobbying expertise, 
um, or community organizing, you have something inherently valuable to offer and we need you. So try not to be afraid to take up space. That is such great advice. I love it. Take up space, all the space. Mm-hmm. Rachel, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation, having you on, and just thank you for everything that you do. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website in between episodes at www.thebgguide.com and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, Brown Girls. How does spirituality inform activism? The majority of the world self-identifies as religious or spiritual, and yet many discussions of politics, culture, and advocacy are devoid of a spiritual framework. A new podcast called Spirited is changing that by speaking with leaders and activists from diverse backgrounds about how spirituality informs their practice and advocacy. Host Dr. Simranjit Singh speaks with influential leaders such as Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, Kamiyan Hari Kondombalu, and Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary. They discuss how their philosophy and spiritual teachings inform their modern-day activism. Listen and subscribe to Spirited wherever you listen to podcasts.